I want to welcome and um, give great appreciation for my friend Brian, who came all the way from Flagstaff to be with us here this weekend. And I was just in Flagstaff, um, where we were teaching a version of this um, subject as well, a little bit longer. Um, and just really, really thankful that you're here. Thank you for coming. Yeah. And um, so you all know, uh, just before we get started, that we, we won't be doing a lot of sitting practice tonight. We have such a short amount of time. This is such a rich topic. So this will be more of a conversation and discussion. Um, tomorrow we'll be going deeper into some of these uh, areas and we invite you all back. There'll be more time for practice then. But we thought we would just start with uh, a few minutes of sitting just to settle in. So inviting you to take a comfortable posture. Really excited to explore this topic at New York Insight. It's um, been my spiritual home for so many years. I think I started coming here in 2005 or 2006, I think. And one thing um, I've been doing more recently in teaching here, as infrequent as it is, is starting with an honoring of the indigenous peoples of this land. It's something I'm doing with my teachings everywhere. And so to begin with that, which often gets left out, is the naming of the Lenape people who stewarded this land responsibly and ethically and beautifully for thousands of years so that we could be here now. So naming them, and if you'd like to touch the earth, just honoring them in gratitude and appreciation for all that they've left us. It's a delight to be here with all of you here. Uh, this is really the, the first time I've been here at New York Insight in terms of, of teaching. So it's a, an honor to be welcomed into this uh, space together with all of you. And also as a way of beginning, not, uh, not only honoring the peoples and, and the land here, but to honor the tradition that we're gonna be speaking about and the particular lines of this tradition that have brought us this practice. You know, so these. The, the lines of this tradition that have uh, gone through a lot of Southeast Asia, through Myanmar and Thailand and Sri Lanka and these specific lineages like the Thai forest tradition or the Mahasi tradition to honor the practitioners and the teachers that bring us these uh, practices so that we're not leaving that out, that we're, we're including this, so that we're not leaving that behind as a way of uh, beginning with this quality of, of reverence. Also in terms of uh, uh, beginning, uh, not only uh, this quality of honoring that we're going over, uh, but also having a space that uh, honors each other. The sense of opening up a space of, of belonging so that just for this evening that we can have a, a, a more open and, and real exploration together. So what do I mean by this space of belonging? And I, I think the only way I can describe it is if you've ever come into a group and somebody says to you, welcome. Yet when you hear that word, it leaves you with this feeling of, of, of oh, I feel welcome here, but I'm not quite sure if all of me is gonna be welcomed here. 
Oh, I feel welcomed here, but is, is this going to be a space where my sexual orientation is welcomed? Oh, I, I feel welcomed here, but in terms of how I identify uh, around gender, is that going to be fully welcomed? I kind of feel welcomed here, but in terms of ability, am I going to be welcomed here? You know, or in terms of race, ethnicity. And the list goes on and on. And you might hear something about the list I'm sharing. It's, it's the places where we might uh, be situated when we're, where we're on, you could say, the margins of the kind of the dominant, the dominant group that's, that's around us. And it can leave us with this feeling of, am I going to be fully welcomed here? So I want to point out that, that we're, 7A are, uh, and I are, are opening up a space for this, this sense of a, a space of belonging, of deep welcome, so that all of the parts of you are fully welcomed here as we begin this exploration this morning, this, this evening. So how many of you are familiar with the term spiritual bypass? How many of you? Okay, great. So it's a term, for those of you who don't know it, that was coined by John Wellwood in the 80s to describe this phenomena that he was witnessing among Western, mostly white Dharma practitioners, where they were um, often experiencing um, or saying that they were experiencing states of transcendence of emotions, of their psychological difficulties. Um, but he was noticing that it was often a bypass. So using um, transcendent teachings like anatta or not-self or even nirvana and awakening itself um, to, thank you, peace, um, to bypass difficult experiences. So an example is, you know, anger would be experienced and there was an immediate um, desire really to let go or aversion, we might say, to experiencing the anger. And so states of um, real transcendence are, are a natural letting go, not an aversive response or a desire to, to have something else. And he, was, he called this spiritual bypass, bypassing difficult emotions, um, by, bypassing difficult psychological material, and sort of having a, what he said as a premature transcendence. Um, that, that left a lot of psychological wounds un, unmet and unresolved. So Brian and I um, started using this term cultural spiritual bypass to refer to that happening with certain cultural dynamics. Um, one of which Brian was pointing to is this realm of our social location or identity. And so we're, we're using that material to start to see where, where are we leaving things out of our practice? Because the Dharma should be able to hold all of it. And where are we using Dharma teachings to transcend these um, social issues, our social identities, and our social realities, which include conflict and difficulty? So I wanted to give that brief preamble because we're about to ask you to engage in a little bit of social identification. And we're going to have you, in a moment, introduce yourselves um, to two other people. So you're going to go into uh, triads. So we're already pushing you to like, have to engage with each other. And to um, offer your name and where you live, um, where you're coming from tonight, and where your people are from. 
So what your heritage is. So we're talking about your ethnic and racial heritage, however that you identify that. So it might be by country or by um, ethnicity or by language groups. So to explore that. And some of us might not know the full history of that, and that, that can be shared too. Um, but to start to feel a little more comfortable with bringing that into our exploration of our practice and to be able to bring our full selves to, to our practice. So is that clear for everyone what we're about to do? So find uh, two other people, so groups of three, and um, we'll give you instructions. And, and so what, uh, Sep and I will just model what we wanna, uh, want you to share, so it's really brief. So if I were to go first, I would say, my name's Brian, and I live in Flagstaff, Arizona. And where my people are from, my people are from uh, a variety of places. One is uh, uh, County Tipperary in Ireland, so I'm uh, uh, Irish Catholic. And then uh, uh, Russia, Russian uh, Jew. And uh, from uh, Montreal, so uh, uh, French-Canadian uh, French Quebecois. My name is Sabine. I live in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, New York. And my people are from... Uh, Eritrea from around Asmara, from Tuguinya-speaking people, and also from Menz, from central Ethiopia in the highlands, and Addis Ababa, uh, Maringya people-speaking people, and I also have a little Oromenian family who was born in Ethiopia. So we have a lot to share tonight, but we would love to hear maybe from two or three people and just speaking from your own experience, um, so not commenting on what was shared in your group, but really what that was like for you or anything that came up in particular. and. Um, just love to hear from a diversity of voices um, to reflect the diversity in the room. So just two or three sharings. And say your names, please. My name is Jed, and I have a very brief comment that in our group when we were talking about how important, how focused or not focused we are on uh, our ancestry and how often we think about it, I was just noticing that uh, certain times in my life, my sense of my identity and my ancestry and where my family's from has been really important to me. I've thought about it a lot. It had to do with the way I was conceptualizing myself and maybe my sort of projects or aspirations, and other times, not at all. Mm. So uh, there's something fluid and constructed going on there. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you, Jed. Anyone else?
My name is Riva, and I'm an artist. And I think that my identity is um, something that I probe constantly and from different angles. Um, and so it's not necessarily just sort of my ancestry, it's my internal being. Mm. Thank you. One more, there's someone in the back. Hi. Um, something came up for me. What's your name? Now, Rachel, sorry. Hi, everyone. I, I have uh, uh, Kathy, I came in late, so Kathy kind of reviewed what the exercise was, but so I jumped right in with the uh, ancestry question, which is really meaningful to me, but I also find, found that when I answer it, I have some sort of um, strange internal reaction to being able to answer it, but knowing I also don't totally know what it means in a way, um, that it's something I've had to really work to understand, and I'm still working to understand. Um, so I constantly feel a sort of embodied, uh, real embodied, um, commitment to, to unfolding all the layers of that while also being a meditator and, and totally identifying with myself that does not have to do with this embodiment. So that's a interesting tension slash beauty that is just, I'm feeling right now. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel. And thank you, all of you, for um, who spoke, who were pointing to something that is so much a part of the conversation that Brian and I have been having about cultural spiritual bypassing, as we're calling it, or just exploring this area of what gets left out of our practice when we practice in spaces together, and um, the culture and the frame is not named. You know, we we just assume that this is a Dharma practice that is. Um, somehow just um, culturally neutral. But of course it's not. It's Everything is filtered through certain lenses and through certain forms and frames. And pointing to all the different types of backgrounds and cultures and experiences that are in the room helps to start to illuminate that. Um, to start to see, sometimes it's talked about seeing the water, you know, the, the joke of, of a fish who comes up to two other fish and says, "How's the water?" And they say, "What's water?" You know, we don't we don't even notice the culture that we're swimming in, um, and how often it's the dominant culture that we're swimming in, and how the translation of the teachings has even come through um, a particular culture. So, thank you for participating in that exercise to start to illuminate these these things. And, and now just to tie exactly what Sebony was talking about, a little bit closer to our practice, our spiritual practice, how we can see this manifest, this really this question that we're coming back to again and again, what gets left out? This theme of 
you know, not just spiritual bypassing, but cultural spiritual bypassing. And some of it is dependent upon um, how I'm situated or, or the, the lenses that I'm seeing um, ex experience or, or things through. And before I give some examples of this, I, I also want to acknowledge that, uh, that we're starting, probably most of us or many of us, with some kind of connection with, with meditation or this tradition or a spiritual path. And there, there, there might be a feeling of fullness already there. So it's not diminishing what we gain from this practice. It's not about that, that there is a, there, there's something so wonderful about a spiritual exploration. But there can be uh, ways that we, we frame things that we might not see things. For example, the, um, there's a, actually a Zen monk, and uh, he's a professor, at, uh, it might still be at, at McGill University, Sogan Hori. And he uh, talks about the study that was done on a retreat. And the, the retreat was filled with um, white Americans and Chinese Americans. And they were doing the exact same retreat under the exact same teacher. And after the retreat, it was asked of all the, of the participants, what did you get out of this, this meditation, the sitting meditation? So I want to point out exact same practice they're doing, exact same instructions. And the white Americans said, well, we feel after ret retreat that now I have more of these tools. I'm more in a, a, a space to deal with my hectic life, the crazy life that I live and, and the way that the, the world is around me and to deal with the stress in my life and the difficult emotions. And then uh, they asked the um, Chinese Americans and they said, uh, uh, most of them said, oh, what this practice brought me was remembering my, um, my obligations to my family and a sense of, of family connection. And this brought this up, a feeling of, of sometimes repentance and shame through this practice to really get that deeper sense of what was really important. So same practice, but do you see in this situation how, uh, uh, how we can be culturally situated or even socially situated, how it can vary how we see what we're getting out of sitting meditation. So this is important just to, to become aware of, of, of what, we, what we believe this is all about, because sometimes we can, we can come to meditation and we can feel like my idea is the right idea, <laughs> but it isn't. It's just one idea about, about what we're doing here. And it's not so much to get rid of how we value the spiritual practice, but, but to become curious about what is being left out. So sometimes it can create a, a sense of more of humility and a, a broadening of this. And this is just around one activity. Sometimes, you know, that, that's a view. Sometimes what gets left out also with a, a view of a spiritual practice is, is what we see as a spiritual practice. So many here, probably we assume that this is all about sitting meditation, but that's where we started. We started with sitting meditation. But there can be so many different aspects, especially of the Theravada tradition, that sometimes are get, gets left out. Chanting, bowing, song, music, dance. You know, the, the whole world of unseen beings and connecting with those unseen beings. And it's not to say that we should be including all these different things, but to be aware of the wide spectrum of what uh, uh, this Theravada tradition is, is about and, and, and a direction towards freedom and awakening. 
And one way of understanding this, and I want to say there's, there's so many different frames, and I'm going to give you one very imperfect frame um, around this, but I, I find it helpful just with the example that I gave and maybe a couple other examples is, is some ways of, of seeing ourselves is, is to see that sometimes we're, we're situated, culturally situated as a modern or someone that's, that's embedded in a traditional culture. And of course, those can mix. And some of you who are bicultural in, this, bicultural in this sense know how these can mix and mash in a way that can be um, quite complex. And so just let me define a few terms here. When I use the word culture, because it's a, such a confusing, tangling word, and it can be used in so many different ways, I, I'm kind of talking about kind of shared ways within a, in a, a grouping of people that, that making meaning happens. For example, I gave you the meaning making that happened around sitting meditation. So that's one way of seeing this, this word um, culture. And, and the word modern is not necessarily white and it's not necessarily Western. So modern, you can have, for example, you can have uh, Chinese a modern culture, modern Japanese culture, modern African-American culture, and it's in contrast to traditional culture. So let me give one example of this. Um, and it, it's just one way of becoming curious about what's getting left out is, I don't know if any of you remember, there was, I think it was in the 1980s, remember Apple computer had these really interesting uh, advertisements and, and there was just two words in the advertisement, think different. And there's all these images of different people. Do you remember some of those images? You get the image of some iconic person and then think different. And there was one of these of the Dalai Lama. So they have the image of the Dalai Lama and then they have the words think different. So it was interesting to see, to, to understand how people again saw one thing, but again, different lenses. And for many people, I know I had this reaction, it was like, What's up with this? This is really, there is something really off here. Here, using a spiritual figure like the Dalai Lama to, to, to perpetuate consumerism. That there's something, there's something amiss here to see that we're connecting thinking different in a spiritual way to sell a computer. Wow, talk about the perpetuation of, of, of capitalism and consumerism by kind of appropriating what I would call a spiritual uh, figure. And there's a lot of commentary around this about uh, how offensive this was and how inappropriate. And then uh, for uh, many people though, um, that were more situated in a purely Tibetan culture, their reaction was completely different. They were like, this is the coolest thing around. The Dalai Lama is the manifestation of Kuan Yin of Avalokiteshvara. And it doesn't matter what form that's in, but to know that, 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 that human beings are exposed to the image of the living embodiment of Avalokiteshvara, that is powerful for the world. It's so powerful. And sometimes that's difficult for quote unquote modern people because we see the Dalai Lama as a human being. For them, it's the manifestation of, of one of the, 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 the supreme bodhisattvas. Same image, but you have a traditional interpretation and more of a, a modern one, a critique of, for example, of, of how consumerism works, how capitalism works. 
one is not better than the other. What's important to see is that how I see things is situated, and I might be leaving things out of my practice. I might be denying a kind of multiplicity. I just want to name that something we're leaving out is a lot of stuff because we usually teach this is a multi-day retreat. Um, so there's, there is a lot of complexity to what we're pointing to and um, it can be overwhelming and we can think, oh, you know, I just want to go and sit. Like, why can't we just sit and have simplicity and that practice is just enough for, for all of our realization. But this willingness to allow all that's been left out to come into the conversation, it does make it more complex, but it also, I, I think, makes it really rich to start to uncover. So um, if this is starting to feel like, oh, this is a lot, how do, I, how do I situate this? How do I understand this for my own practice? We're not gonna figure it out tonight in two hours. Um, and this is really a, a, a teaser for you all to come back tomorrow, one. Um, but also to, to start to engage in this, this inquiry for yourselves in whatever way feels appropriate for different, uh, for, for different people it's going to feel different in terms of what, what part of it they want to engage with. So just to name, sometimes I say it's like almost the unbearable complexity of, of these conversations. So tonight we um, won't get into... Um, many explorations of what gets left, left out. Uh, tomorrow we'll be exploring things like chanting and song and devotion, unseen beings, and some of the things that Brian named. But I wanna just name two things that I think um, often get left out in our modern um, and Western often interpretation of these teachings. One is the feminine and the other is mystery. And I think those, those two are actually quite related. Um, so when I'm speaking of the feminine, I'm speaking of the energetic quality of uh, what's sometimes referred to as yin or the sacred feminine. So I'm not talking only about men and women or, or gender, although that gets implicated in the conversation. Um, and I'm not trying to uphold a, a dualism or a binary way of thinking but using this metaphor of yin and yang or feminine and masculine to sort of identify the way different energies um, and different orientations are privileged in the expression of our practice, um, particularly in this culture. <clears throat> so yin is often um, referred to as feminine. It's the receptive quality. It often is, um, as an archetype, lived as depth or darkness, um, matter or density, form, sort of slower, it's oriented to the earth. It's often referred to as imminent, like what's here right now. Whereas the masculine energy, and again, this is an energetic um, quality, and this is not about men or women. Yin and yang and feminine and masculine exist in all things. They're actually not separate but we use this binary to understand how they're balanced. So the masculine energy is often referred to as um, active. It's, it's uh, light and um, height. It's connected to the sun 
rather than the moon, and energy and space rather than matter or density, emptiness rather than form. It's faster and it's often associated with the transcendent. And there might be, you might have heard that um, some of the, those qualities or those associations are things that we might associate the masculine with our spiritual practice, the transcendent, emptiness, um, active energy, aspiration is often associated with the masculine. And that the feminine has often been devalued in many spiritual practices, but we're talking here about the manifestation of um, the Dharma in uh, our Western Buddhist communities or Theravadan communities particularly. And this has a correlation to the devaluing or the diminishment of the social feminine. So we can see the diminishment of women in this tradition. And for those of you who are not aware, just Google Theravadan nun controversy. Um, that there, there is a, a very definite diminishment of women um, and the literal feminine. Um, and this is complex because it's not about male or female. You know, there is a spectrum of gender. Um, but we also need to acknowledge the historical oppression of women and how these um, things that get left out actually have an impact. So is there a correlation between the diminishment of the feminine as an energy? And this includes the body, you know, the imminent of what's here and the emphasis on the masculine intellect, sort of the height of the head um, over the somatic experience of the body here. And this is not about bashing men um, or even um, the historical holding of this tradition by men. As Bell Hooks says, patriarchy has no gender. And I like to say it also has no winners, that uh, it really affects all of us when we are out of balance with these energies. So there's this distortion um, when we privilege the transcendent over the imminent, lightness over depth and darkness, form or emptiness over form, the mind or the intellect over the body and embodiment. And that can affect us. Well, you know, when it gets left out, how does that show up? in our practice, in our bodies, in our expression? What are we losing when we leave that part out? And like I alluded to, I really see a correlation between this diminishment of the feminine and this um, loss of mystery. You know, there's been such amazing transformation that's been happening with the spread of meditation and mindfulness that's really grown out of this particular tradition, in fact. Um, and it's, it's really wonderful to see so many people coming to the practice um, because it is being proven you know, with rational scientific evidence. And I would venture that there are not only things that we haven't proven, but there are things that we can't prove through science and rational thought. And the mystery of this practice 
including some of the things we'll talk about tomorrow, is, is really deeply embedded in the practices when we can open up to them, when we don't try and leave them out because they make us uncomfortable, we don't quite understand what's happening, it doesn't make sense. Um, you know, why, why do we chant these things? Why are we calling on these unseen beings? when we need to explain something that's happening for us in our practice or in our experience in rational, scientific ways, what are we diminishing? What are we leaving out? And what do we lose by doing that? And I would venture that not only does this correlate to gender, but it also correlates to race and culture. That often the things we're diminishing are things that are still held by indigenous cultures, um, by ethnically and culturally marginalized communities. And so what's being left out culturally um, when we diminish the feminine, when we diminish mystery, when we diminish nature, which is something that we'll explore when we're teaching at BCBS next week. But we can also explore, even in our practice, in stinky, dirty New York. You know, we were telling Robin, uh, Brian's wife is here, and Brian today, that you know there was a hawk on our fire escape in Crown Heights some weeks ago, and that, that nature is all around us, and we are nature. Um, you know, can we include that in our practice and, and how is that connecting us to all the different cultures that are in the room? Bhikkhu Analio, who um, is an amazing Theravadan scholar, in his book on compassion and emptiness, he points to this mystery that's really at the heart of our practice and our lives. And he says this, that all the cells that comprise you are made of atoms. Most of the atom is space. The size of the atomic nucleus compared to that of the whole atom is similar to the size of a grain of rice that is placed in a football stadium. So if you applied that to your own body, if all the nuclei in your body could be placed side by side, the area they would occupy would be a speck of dust. The rest of you is empty space. So the form that you think you are, that we think we are, is mostly space. And yet we're here as solid beings in relationship with each other, bringing this culture. And that paradoxical reality that we're swimming in can be appreciated from so many different angles. You know, from, from our practice in silence, but also through our conversation about our shared cultures um, and what they, they might open us up to in this exploration. So I think I'll stop there and see if Brian, do you have something to add to that? We just want to uh, take some time just to open it up for 
questions at this point, if there's any questions or comments, and then we'll take the next step um, in our exploration together after that. So, yeah. Please, please say your names when you speak. Hi. Hello? Yeah. Uh, hi, I'm Aaron. Hi, Aaron. Um, uh, I was wondering about the, um, the marginalization of, of the yin, if that's a function of, of modernity. That, that has, that's not something that's always been the case, isn't it? Um, so Aaron was asking if the diminishment of the yin is a function of modernity. And um, I guess it depends on when you say modernity started. You know, patriarchy's been around a lot longer than colonialism or even racial ideas and a lot of these other um, forms of marginalization. So it goes pretty far back. I, I did ask my teacher who studied in Thailand, you know, how this manifested there, if she felt, because it, there there is a, a long history of patriarchal <laughs> expression in Buddhism um, that predates its modernity or coming here or anywhere. Um, and the way she phrased it, I really appreciated. She said, yes, there's a really young quality to the practice. This practice is pretty active. Um, it is uh, oriented towards, in a lot of ways, transcendence and um, realizing what's harder to realize uh, in our in our form of life, but that the practice is embedded completely in a yin culture. So there's a lot of re relationality, there's a lot of holding, there's a lot of um, inherent connection to the body um, that you know we get, we're born that way, but we get schooled out of that really quickly you know, through schooling and through our, our sort of intellectual orientation as a culture. And she, the way she sees it, it's like we took a young practice and we dropped it in a young culture. So it's not that that, um, that it's not that there's no patriarchal tendencies in the cultures origins um, that the that the Dharma came from, but it might have been mitigated or sort of softened by the culture around it, which is more Yin. Now I don't have like a religious studies kind of scholarly analysis of this, but that's sort of my, my take on that. Yeah, maybe just from a, a little bit different angle and just in, in terms of a practitioner, how I come about this and, and to reiterate what 7A was saying is that, uh, well, maybe just say a little bit about my own practices. I'm very much committed to mostly kind of a, a, a Theravadan way of practicing and really want to explore that Buddhist path uh, because it's so close to my heart. And part of uh, exploring a tradition, and I'll get around to what you're saying, is, is I need to see that within traditions there are these like patriarchal lines. And, and uh, to, to not see those can be really um, unhelpful for myself and for the communities I'm in. So, so there is, in the Theravada tradition, there are these lines of, of patriarchy. It's very common in, in Buddhist discourse, you know, the, 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 the sense of um, that a rebirth as a man is much better than a rebirth as a woman. 
for example, in Tibetan, a uh, woman literally means, and the word Tibetan literally means lower rebirth. So it's embedded in a, in, a, in a perspective. So there's definite things in this tradition I want to leave to the side, but it doesn't mean I need to throw out the entire tradition. I just want to be able to see those things and set them aside. So as Sebene was saying, it's been around for a long time. So I think that's, that's one aspect in coming to see that um, and acknowledge that and then having a vision of these other aspects uh, that we find in Buddhist practice that Sebene was referring to. There are um, uh, archetypal images of the feminine, but also um, practices that bring out the feminine that we can find in that very same tradition that honor the feminine. So just a little bit different angle of, I think, another part of this exploration for all of us individually. It's, it's been an, it, also a, a, an important practice for me being um, so conditioned as a man from dominant culture, the kind of blindnesses I've been given. It's, in, uh, it's, it's been a really important exploration around that. And you know, in some ways, what has been left out in the translation um, to America, at least, is a lot of what we might call the more receptive aspects of the practice. You know, the the lyrical, the chanting, um, the receptivity of the bowing practice, which is really about this balance of yin and yang. So there's an active pose, and then there's a receptive pose. Um, you know, the less sort of linear and um, striving energy that is is about being in a culture that is supporting the fullness of the practice so for for many their practice is about um, supporting the monastic community um, about um, uh, providing resources and support for the fullness of the practice it's not necessarily about meditating to try and get somewhere so we brought very young elements, and we, we left out some of the yin elements of that holding. And, and tomorrow we will be covering some of those, bringing in a little bit of chanting and song and, um, and also imagery that, that, that evokes that quality of the feminine. I also want to say, when we're kind of going over through questions, uh, uh, kind of answering questions and taking some time with us. If you need to stand up or move around, really feel free to do that. So it doesn't have to be like, so um, uh, don't feel confined to where you're sitting if your body needs to move around while we're talking. So feel free to kind of move as we open up the space for if there's any other questions or comments. And one of the things we bring up in a, in a longer format is um, you know, the disappearance of the laying down practice which is one of the four formal postures. And then we have these, these images of the Buddha in full lotus, straight, ramrod straight, as the ideal. Um, you know, and how much is lost when we, aren't, we don't allow ourselves the receptivity of the laying down practice, and, and what is that about? You know, it doesn't fit our image, looks lazy, <laughs> doesn't look like a real meditator. Thank you. Um, my name is Naoko, and the question that I had is, um, you know, these things that are disappearing, 
Is it because Buddhism, particularly in America, is being taught by certain demographic? And if we want to change that, how do you go about doing that? How do you bring about the different voices and the different practices? How can we do that? It, 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 in some ways, it sounds like you answered it yourself. Changing the demographic helps of, of having a, a much wider um, array of who's teaching, um, I think, can be really helpful because then, then you have a multiplicity of uh, people being situated differently, which is going to give rise to different narratives or different ways of practicing or valuing different practices that are in the tradition. So in some ways, I just appreciate you kind of giving us the answer, at least on, on one level. Uh-huh. I, I so appreciate that question, Naoko, and it's, it's, it's as complex as um, all of this conversation, because um, I know we've talked about a little bit um, taking on another culture's practices and offering them. And you know, I'll be offering a practice that was offered to me by my teachers. It's not my culture. You know? and, and what does that mean? And I, and I consider that. Um, as I teach the Dharma too, um, am I? Do I have a deep enough understanding to share this in an authentic way that is um, really honoring what I'm what I'm offering? Um, and so it's. I think it's a continuing conversation, what you're asking, um, and and we're we're trying to change the conversation by making this um, a, a conversation for retreat practice. That this is a valid, just as valid as you know, studying the Satipatthana Sutta for five days. Um, you know, that that's often considered the real Dharma practice. What we're doing is like I don't know some racial cultural stuff. And blah, blah, blah. And, and no, this is Dharma practice too. This really deep examination of what is going on here and what are we really doing and um, are we are we really honoring the teachings and can can we really um, say that we truly understand the fullness if we leave out all of this as well. Um, so it's, it's really, it's a very deep question that you're a- asking, so thank you. I guess one other thing I just want to add, I want to be clear about what we're not saying too. We're not here to say what you're missing from your spiritual practice. Because I actually don't know what you consider, all of you consider your spiritual practice. But I want to be clear that we're not saying if you're not chanting or bowing or having particular feminine images in your practice or you're not including unseen beings or the more than human world, you're doing the wrong practice. It's not. It's not about that. It's just seeing seeing that how I practice is situated in a particular way, and there's other ways of practicing. Because what starts to happen is is that you come to a place like New York Insight, or you go to Insight Meditation Society, or Spirit Rock in California, and there's a there's a narrative about what Buddhist practice is about, and it can be like, oh, this is what it's about. Oh, and that other stuff isn't as necessary. This is really what it's about. And we're trying to dispel some of that idea that there's one way. 
that there's a multiplicity because when there's a multiplicity, we can have, I think, healthier communities too. So be, please be clear, we're not saying this is, this is what, what, what you're lacking and you need it, but more, how, how are these eyes working? How are the lenses of my eyes working and what I've been given? Some of you might be aware that there's a conversation in this tradition and community about sort of these um, mystical teachings of the Buddha and how there's no evidence for them like reincarnation, like conversations about unseen beings, and how you know those were just social realities at the time, and the Buddha just included it so that people could relate. And so it's that kind of dismissal and that kind of tone of um, uh, not valuing other ways of seeing or teaching or practicing that we're kind of wanting to open and explore. So. Just to... And maybe just to give a personal example around this, which has been really helpful for me, is that I, I notice a fluidity in my perception or, or the way I engage in the, in, in the practice around unseen beings. Like there's been times from uh, Tibetan teachers I've had that I've done like a, a, a white Tara practice, which is a particular practice to this Bodhisattva white Tara, where you're chanting a mantra, there's a, the image of white Tara, and a lot of times you're you're imagining this, this image to shower down kinds of blessings or, or a kind of protection upon one. And when I'm doing that practice, it feels like uh, white Tara really is there. And it's something that I've developed a relationship with that particular being um, or other beings like Kuan Yin, doing a Kuan Yin practice that, that we'll be exploring uh, tomorrow. And it feels like these unseen beings are really important in my life. And other times, eh, you know, it just doesn't fit. But it's, it, what's been so helpful is to have the fluidity for that possibility has been really so helpful. So I find within myself, there's this huge range of having more of a kind of modern scientific perspective that seems to arise in the mind. And then other times, this, this more of this perspective that has really allowed the heart to open in a really radical, radically different way. So I've appreciated opening this up because then I can have a world of unseen beings and I don't need to know if they're real or not real. I need to see how they move the heart. And that's just for me, you know, it might be quite different for, for you, Sabine, but, but I think that, that's one of the things I've gotten out of this exploration. So it has a practical significance for the practices that I'm engage, engaging in. I'm totally down for the unseen beings. <laughs> <laughs> Something I often point to when I teach about the, the body as the the call in the teachings for uh, awareness of the body as center of our practice is, um, you know, our our lack of connection to the body. You know, we think about the body more than we really experience our body, and how um, that has been a huge part of the colonial project is to disconnect us from the land. I, I was reflecting on it recently, and I said, oh. You know, slavery and the enslavement of people, and especially of African peoples, was all about getting as much out of the land as possible. It was about exploitation of the earth, and the earth is our body. We're earth on earth. Um, and um, this story about the wayfinders, I don't know how many of you saw Moana, 
the film Moana, it was amazing, um, about wayfinding, which is a, a practice um, that has been practiced for millennia by Pacific Islander people, and they're able to navigate thousands of miles of ocean just using the body and their connection to the natural world. Um, and there's mystery in that as well. But when the colonizers came to the Pacific Islands, they couldn't believe that people could travel that far. They realized these were the same people who were in Fiji that were in Hawaii. So they must have gotten there somehow, and they came up with the theory that they drifted there because they couldn't imagine being able to do it without all their navigations and instruments. They still got lost wherever they were going. But the, but the training for wayfinding started so young. You know, infants were placed in the water to order to feel the tides and learned the movement of the ocean and the animals and the sky and the stars. The birds learned to understand um, what was happening around them in the natural world and also called on the spirit world to support them. So these, you, it was young men at the time that there are wayfinding women now. Um, would sit at the front of the boat and navigate day and night, thousands of miles, can you imagine? And be able to get there and back and forth and know their way. And so there, there's an incredible power of the body, of the feminine, of that receptivity and connection with form and what's imminent, but there's also a connection to mystery. And so what we lose when we are in this um, colonized mind that thinks we can figure it all out and that our practice is about um, not having stress and getting to a particular mind state or a particular level of the jhanas. And, and not that that's bad, but again, what are we leaving out? What are we losing when we have that kind of orientation? Your mention of the protection of unseen beings reminded me of an incident in my life which may have been an experience of just that. But first I'd like to share with everyone two examples of what human beings are capable of with the manipulation of energy. A friend of mine was a bodybuilder in his youth and he's often spoken of the time when he was in this garage he shared with his bodybuilding friends when they were visited by an oriental man who challenged them to lift him up off the ground. And they all laughed. They were all two to 300 pound muscle bone gorillas, but not one of them could lift him off the ground. He was doing what's simply called grounding your energy. Bill Moyers on his trip to China, I think it was in the 1960s, made a documentary film of it, which was shown on public television. And in that, he featured a Chinese master of energy manipulation. This man had, this was on public television. This man had about five or six men line up one behind the other. The Chinese master pointed the palm of his hand toward them. They started wobbling around like a bunch of billiards until they all went down. I was about five or six years, years old when I was in a Chicago school playground <clears throat> in the winter. And there was about two feet of snow on the ground. So all the kids were knocking each other down into the snow. I was standing there watching this when a kid, I would guess about half a foot taller than I, about 40 to 50 pounds heavier than I, 
came running towards me and smashed into me with his shoulder. I don't think there's a professor of physics anywhere in the world who would say that according to their rules of physics, there was any way I would not have gone down, but I did not go down. This other kid went down. He got up in amazement and started yelling at everyone, did you see that? I don't remember looking at him or even saying anything to him. I was kind of like, I remember it as being kind of in a semi-trance and felt a slight nudge of the energy between me and him. And he just walked away and that was it. So what I, I can only imagine mm. that would be an example of an angelic protection. Mm. For whatever reason, yeah. it was not my time to possibly take my leave of this world. Mm -hmm. Thank, Thank you. you, thanks for sharing. Maybe a karmic mm. reaction. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Hi, hi, my name is Frederick. Um, I, in my, I don't know if, you know, it's always hard to say if really have an experience of connecting with unseen being or not but in um, in what it's my experience it's the the few times that I in some ways had that feeling it's the few times where where I had the the my ego or the the or this thought about this connection as, a, as something that, oh, I'm powerful, oh, I have this special connection, as little as, as I ever had, mm -hmm. probably. So maybe also our society that becomes so self-centered and so always built around our egos, even in the sadness of our egos or in the fear of our egos or whatever, is like one of the barriers mm -hmm. that... that um, that don't don't allow us to connect or to relax into that mm -hmm. to that uh, possibility. Thank you. Yeah, there there's so little we really understand conceptually, and there there's so much we're trying to figure out up here. And um, you know, there's up to twelve dimensions. There's time is relative. We're mostly space. There, there's so many possibilities for connecting into that reality that there, that we're interconnected, as the Dharma says. But like you're saying, when we're wrapped up here and our own thoughts or um, self obsessions, we can't connect into that field of possibility of all that mystery and and who knows what. So in a few minutes here, we're going to be having a slideshow to continue to explore this, to explore this through imagery. And again, it's the same exploration of what's getting left out from our spiritual practice. And, and so we'll be using the slideshow to evoke that. And I'll go specifically about maybe some things you might want to keep in mind uh, when you're seeing these images, a way of... of kind of reflecting and contemplating on this, this, this slideshow. But one more, just again, way of 
an entryway into um, this topic, but from a different angle, is it's also the, the question of what, uh, what kind of Buddha do we see, or how, how do we envision the Buddha? Because you could say there's so many different Buddhas, which I think is interesting. Like right now, a, a very popular Buddha uh, that's around is the scientific Buddha. So there's many books out there that say, isn't it amazing how scientific the Buddha is? I mean, it's just like, it's just, it fits so well with scientific discoveries. Like he's, he's right there. I mean, he must have had that sense. Have you heard this before? Am I the only one? And there can be something really appealing about the, and relieving to know that there's a Buddha out there that was really scientific, because then our mind can say, well, now at least he's not into the, all the woo-woo stuff. He's, <laughs> he's scientific. But, but I want to point out that that, too, is a kind of cultural lens. Or sometimes what we see is a psychological Buddha. Wow, the, the Buddha was so psychologically adept. He's understood psychology so much. But then that's a, a, a certain uh, perspective of who the Buddha is. Like for me, when I read some of these early early uh, scriptures of Buddhism, I don't hear a psychological Buddha, I hear a poetic Buddha. And I'm like, wow, he had such a sense of, of, of the poetic, metaphorical quality of teaching. And I'm, I'm saying that just to kind of open up the space of, of what we see and, and to see that there's something fluid about this tradition or even the, the, the Buddha that we see, that it doesn't have to be a particular way. And, and I find that relieving and, and um, it, it opens up the world of possibility. Can I add something to that? Yeah. Yeah, it's that, like that Anais Nin quote, something like, we don't see the world as it is, we see it as we are. And I totally see like a socially active Buddha, like a social activist Buddha, when I read about um, all that he was engaged in. And so that's so much about the lens that I'm bringing. And so comes back to what Nooko is saying about um, you know, having different voices, having different teachers, having different orientations and what they might bring to these teachings. And we get to see the, the arising of different Buddhas, which is yes. really <laughs> fantastic. Sabine will be showing us these, these images in the slideshow. And I just invite you to, to keep in the back of your mind of, uh, that some of these pictures might be pointing out of uh, things that we're leaving out of our practice or our perspective of what spiritual practice is all about. So that's one thing is like, oh, interesting. I, I, that's, a, that's an aspect of spiritual practice that, I, that, that it didn't ever occur to me that this image is evoking. Or you might see a number of images, and as you see the images, it's like, wow, all these images are showing something, but the images are not showing this aspect of my life. It's like, here are all these certain images, but they're not showing any images of something else about my life that isn't there. So there might be something that's not on the screen that is literally being left out in, in that sense. So they work two different ways of the image evoking, showing you what's being left out. Or there might be a bunch of images and you don't see an image. So that's one way of reflecting. But also, I find a lot of these images, I'm just there to see them and see what they emotionally evoke the feeling sense, so that I'm bringing my heart along of like, wow, this, there's something about this image that's speaking to my heart that's significant. And I don't even need to know, need to be able to put that into words. I just need to feel that, that kind of emotional or feeling or that feeling quality resonance that, that might happen, sorry, with, um, with some of the images. Yeah, do, do you want to? And just to know, many of us know that there were no surviving images or known images of the Buddha um, until many centuries after his death. So for many years, there were only symbols 
the Dharma wheel or the footprint, which will be the first image we see, um, uh, the Bodhi leaf, um, those were there to evoke his teachings um, and his awakening. And it's only later that we got images of a Buddha or many Buddhas. Okay, so now what I'd like to invite all of you to do is to get in groups of two and to uh, uh, share uh, what you noticed, what, what, what got evoked by this reflection and exploration. And if possible, to uh, get with someone that was not in your triad uh, from the previous exploration that we did. So right now, if you can get into groups of two, um, and then we'll, we'll go from there once you uh, find another person to pair off with. Okay, so um, what we'll do is, is just take about uh, uh, four minutes each to share um, what you noticed, what, 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 what this evoked around this question of what gets uh, left out. And we'll ring a bell after four minutes just to remind you to, to switch at that point. So, um, and in terms of who can begin, the person who was uh, born closest to the month of January can begin. So you can figure that out and then begin, please. So I'd like to open up our sharing by um, sharing a couple of images with you of um, these Ethiopian, um, this is a fresco and a, a mural that really, for me, symbolized this very human tendency to represent uh, the sacred and divinity and all things as, as we see ourselves. So Ethiopia has a long Christian history, from, starting from about the fourth century AD. And our images, um, our iconography, it looks Ethiopian. So these angels have Ethiopian faces. And these depictions of um, saints and of Jesus and um, of different Bible stories also have Ethiopian imagery. So that very human quality we have of wanting to represent um, or see ourselves represented in the divine. So we offer that up as an opening for our conversation um, about the image of the Buddha, how we imagine the Buddha, and um, anything that arose in contemplating the images we showed, or also anything you want to share um, in these, this last little while that we have, about 10 minutes, 12 minutes. Oh, we're so talkative with each other. <laughs> <laughs> 
Chatis. It's there. I am Chati. Um, what struck me was that um, most of the images shown were of one thing. And so when it came to the contrast of the big scene, I don't know if it was a village scene or a scene with many people, it was very striking to me. Mm. And it kind of um, made me think a lot about how when we practice Buddhism or meditation or mindfulness in the West, as it's come to this culture, it's very much like an individualistic pursuit, right? How am I gonna, I gonna get out of suffering? How is this practice gonna help me? Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes when we think about cultural spiritual bypass, it's directly related to that, mm. right? Like, I, if I can get out of suffering, why can't you? If this feels good for me, well, I just see the goodness in everyone. And I think especially if you are of a dominant culture or you have privilege, it's much harder to reach across the divide to talk about things that are sticky and uncomfortable like racism and sexism and patriarchy and oppression if, because you also have kind of this shield of like, well, I practice. And I have encountered this, you know, I. I teach yoga and meditation, and I often teach in spaces where people don't have resources and people come from a more disenfranchised or traumatic backgrounds, and it's talking to people who are not in this realm of kind of trauma-informed or social justice lens, and they're like, well, why would, you know, just, just teach them these practices to get out of suffering? And I'm like, there are many, many different kinds of suffering that are not individualistic, that are much more of a, like a collective or, his, or historical trauma. So my question or kind of my observation is how do I use my Buddhism? For example, right speech or patience when talking to people that believe that they have transcended but really are spiritual bypassing. Good question. <laughs> Very carefully. <laughs> um, well, I will share that we wanted, this is a slideshow we've used for a while since last year, and we've been adding different images to it as things have come up, and we wanted to add an image of the Buddha with children, and I could not find one. I found a couple of images of the Buddha with Rahula, his son, but, um, you know, this, we added this one of community because that's another thing. It's very hard. That's a, a Thai mural, and there, there is that tradition there. But it's these solitary images, and um, it is something very striking. We talk about the translation to this culture. What's been lost is that, that yin communal quality. Um, and and it, it's in for, it, I think it's um, reinforced by this solitary Buddha image that has become so prevalent. So thank you for naming that. I don't have an answer for you. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> I guess a couple things that come to mind just around, and thank you for showing what's left out, especially the collective or systemic dynamics of suffering. 
so much of the way we talk about suffering is individual suffering, and then it, it bypasses systemic dynamics. Um, it, it, in, in terms of when I'm, if I'm in a community or with individuals, for me what's important, again, is relationship just with others, because um, I, I have to remember, most people really don't want to listen to me. And, 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 but if I have a friendship or a connection, it sounds like there can be some kind of conversation. And what I use for the systemic, and when I teach this, I actually, I utilize, I'll, I'll be honest with you, and this is for white people, I use a, an example of systemic dynamics that is not racial first, so I, I, like, I don't know if any of you have read um, the, the book Blink. There's this example around hockey teams and how systemic dynamics works of who becomes a kind of a professional hockey player is around systems. And, and then, uh, so setting the stage around something that's sometimes a little bit more easily digestible and then talking about, for example, systemic racism or systems around gender, uh, sometimes I found a little bit easier. But um, I'm not saying it's going to work either. So, yeah. yeah. And this is something I'm still exploring myself about how the conversation, how to have the conversation. So please don't get the impression that I know how to. It's just something that I'm exploring. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's conversations too. It's very hard to answer or respond with one response to help people really see clearly. For any of you who are interested, especially in in, in issues around race and um, systemic racism and oppression. Um, there's an amazing podcast that I've been recommending to everybody called uh, Seen on Radio is the name of the podcast, and they have a series of 14 episodes called Seeing White. And it's one of the most um, really well-produced, well-done orientations around systemic racism, not just individual um, unconscious bias or... Our, our individual relationship to, to race, but how this plays out systemically in America. And it's, it's a really great resource to recommend to people. Yeah. And maybe just one thing. That is the Buddha I see. There's some really interesting passages where it, feel, where it feels like to me he's talking about systemic dynamics, not just individual dynamics, even though there's a lot of that, but these, these striking passages even 2,600 years ago. But I'm situated in a different, in a particular way, and I'm sympathetic to that. Thank you for that. Can you just tell us a little bit more about the image of the tree? Mm -hmm. The the with the rope. So that was um, an ordination of trees uh, in Cambodia, um, and it's a practice that's used. It's actually Brian who told me about it um, to help protect forests. Um, so. The, the monastics ordain the trees. So in a sense, it's, it's seeing the Buddha nature of the tree, um, which is why we included it as an, a very interesting kind of image. Um, so there's, is there a transformation of the Buddha within the tree in this process? It, 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 it's, I want to point out, it's also a form of social activism. One of the things that they're trying to do is when a tree is ordained, uh, um, in, in, in particular cultures, like in Thailand and Sri Lanka and Cambodia, to, to, to actually do harm to one who is ordained is, is, is so bad karmically. So the hope is to, to actually to, to, um, prevent these trees from being cut down. And that's the kind of the main purpose is we're going to ordain them to protect them from people cutting them down. That image was a little bit cheap. 
because the other images were images of Buddhas or, um, or enlightened beings, um, but trees are enlightened beings, so we decided to include it. I guess for me also what that image evoked is uh, uh, that spiritual practice is also ecological concern. Ecological concern. But that's just for me. Say more. The idealization of the form that it isn't a person, it never reaches being a person, nor does it want to be. Let's say in Grunewald's fright, there's such agony that it almost reaches being a person. But in here, they're very, very idealized. Mm, and like stoic and. Not of this Mm. Yeah, there are some images. We have another version of this where we have the emaciated Buddha, and there are some like suffering images of the Buddha that are. Is there an old Buddha, for instance? Hmm, that's a good question. Is there a dying Buddha yeah. under the tree? Yeah, I haven't seen that. Yeah, I mean there are images from the Buddha's life that are paintings or murals that show him at different ages. Um, but in terms of the, the altar Buddha, um, there, there aren't those, you know, it's sort of, it's sort of stuck in a certain age. And, and, and I think this is a, a great question of what's getting left out. So yeah. a lot of the narrative you find, at least in the Pali Canon, Pali being the early scriptural language of Buddhism, is um, sometimes in early Buddhism you find more humanness of the Buddha, but then as Buddhism... Uh, uh, ages and goes through different cultures, there's more of an idealized, it gets farther and farther away from a human, uh, human characteristics. Right. Yeah, so I think you, I think this is really correct that this, is a, this too gets left out as our humanness. Mm. So thanks for showing what was not there. Like the Buddha yeah. supposedly suffered from severe, severe back pain, but there's no back pain Buddha. Well, no. an aged Buddha would be interesting. Yeah. You're right. Since the Buddha is about death as well as life. And lived into his 80s, so aged. Right. Yeah. So we actually have to end here, but we hope all of you are coming back tomorrow. Um, and that if not, that you've received um, something from this. and. We'll hopefully continue to share in this conversation and exploration. And I just want to thank Brian again for coming and, and mm. doing this and, with me. And thank you, Seven Eight. And also, she's she's putting up uh, my wife and I in New York and showing us a great time. So it's I'm really grateful for this. And, and thank you, everyone, for this exploration. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.